I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to Wall Street uh, and had a very successful career at Dillon Reed. Uh, I was there from 1978 to 1989, and then I went into the first Bush administration as Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing uh, Administrator, and was there for 18 months, did not get along with the Cabinet Secretary, so I left. And in the process, I discovered um, what technology could do to make financing neighborhoods much more Productive. My vision was that government money was destroying neighborhoods, not helping them, and and now entrepreneurs could take this new technology and finance privately. So I started an investment bank and broker dealer in Washington named Hamilton Securities Group, and a couple of years later we were hired back by the Federal Housing Administration to be the lead financial advisor, and that gave me access to incredibly rich databases about how all the real estate and land and uh, a lot of the mortgage financing and home building works in uh, in America. America's just 3,100 counties. And so I got to build a very incredible wealth of databases on sort of how the money works by place in America. Then I entered a period where I litigated with the federal government for 11 years. The Department of Justice seized all the databases and all the software tools and I litigated with the federal government, and that's when it forced me to really dive into how the control systems were working. You know, when I was in Wall Street, I saw a lot about how the financial control systems worked, but um, since so much is rigged through the central bank and through government, it gave me a chance to really see how government worked on the covert side and how that related to Wall Street and Washington. I was sitting in my office in 1998 and I was litigating and dealing with what happened at that point was trillions of dollars started to get sucked out of the government. And in essence, you were watching a coup d'etat by financial means. And I realized the extent to which Washington and Wall Street were, were basically levering up the, gun, the government stealing the money. And I turned to my attorney and I said, you know, we're going to have to find our way, a way to support ourselves by working for individuals. And she turned to me, I'll never forget it, and she said, good luck, honey. <laughs> but what you saw was, if you looked at, at the financial coup, basically what they were doing is they were stealing everybody's retirement. You know, everybody's going to retire in 20 or 30 years, but they were going to steal the money up front. So by the time we got to where we are now, the money would be gone, and they could say to the, turn to everybody and say, well, we can't really afford your retirement. When I was on Wall Street, we were in a world of what people would think of as, as sort of, on one side you had markets and monetary policy run by the central banks, and then you had the electorate influencing the fiscal policy and the government, and so you had a, uh, think of it as a two-pillar system. And um, markets were clearly managed centrally, so the central banks in their control of monetary policy could simply print money. So the central banks print money, and then the military runs around to make sure everybody takes it, and it stays liquid. And the economic equation is, can you make more money from printing than you have to spend on the military and making the system go? So I'll give you an example. In the 80s, we had a period of tremendous monetary expansion. And in the last year of the decade, it was 88, I think, or in 89, there was a huge fight in the Dillon Reed Partnership um, about how much money should be trade, paid to the traders for bonuses. And I had a wonderful partner who did a study, and he showed that in all the trading floor, so equities, bonds, you know, all the different aspects of the trading floor, if instead of having traders in the seats, we'd had chimpanzees, we would have made more money. Okay. And it was very interesting because you'd go out to the Hamptons on the weekends and you'd, you know, you'd be in the plane or the bus and you'd hear everybody talking about they were making fantastic amounts of money because they were brilliant and geniuses and smart and clever. But it wasn't. It was just simply the monetary policy floating the boats up, you know, but everybody was making money. So, so for example, you know, because a lot of the money comes from economic warfare, so you... You pump up the dollar. You're moving money out of the U.S. government. You uh, you loan everybody in Asia as we're coming through this big change of globalization. 
you loan massive amounts of dollars, and then all of a sudden you pull all the loans. So you throw them into a debt entrapment, you pull the money, and then they get a crash. Now your dollar's high, so you go and buy in everything cheap. The governance structure that existed before the financial coup was basically you have the central banks running monetary policy, right? And then you have the sovereign government running fiscal policy. Okay, and the citizens pay taxes to the sovereign government and they elect representatives who have something to say about how that fiscal money gets whacked up. Okay, and then you have private central bankers and private interests who control monetary policy and are relatively independent of the fiscal. And what we've seen as you lever up the governments, because the, the less the government has information sovereignty and financial sovereignty, the more dependent it is on the central bankers. So as the government uh, have levered up with debt and lose their, their, their sort of informational sovereignty and their financial sovereignty, part of this is what's happened with digital technology, the central bankers have gotten more and more powerful. Now, for the, since fiscal 1998, we've had what I call the financial coup d'etat. So in the United States, we have now reported up to $100 trillion that's been moved out. Okay? So Dr. Skidmore and I did a study as of 2015. The number was $21 trillion. So at the time, Dr. Skidmore did his survey of the $21 trillion missing from the U.S. government. At that exact time, we had $20 trillion of debt. So there was more money disappearing than there was debt. But you lever it up, you take the money out, that's the financial coup. Now that the money's out, you can collapse the, the government, okay? So you're saying the, the central banks would run the monetary policy, So, so the Congress would run what's spent, right? Well, it's the central bankers' owners. So mm -hmm. remember, most of the central bankers are privately owned, and these decisions are made privately, you know, by the owners or or by the central banks, but subject to their approval. But remember, the central banks, so in the United States, it's the New York Fed that is the depository for the U.S. government, and it's the Fed member owners who manage the accounts and are the primary dealer for the securities. So if these guys are transacting illegally, it's the private guys who are doing it for them. Mm -hmm. In other words, the government doesn't have the power to make illegal transactions its bankers have to affect those illegal transactions, okay? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so now we've reached the point where the central banks are moving in and basically taking control of fiscal policy as well. And what we're seeing, and this is why there's such a big debate about election fraud, essentially the computer systems are controlled um, for the elections, and essentially the the citizens or taxpayers have lost uh, any say. If you look at recent polls over the last 10 years, the citizens want the country to go to the right and the Congress votes to go to the left. And that's because increasingly these p people are controlled and dependent on, um, on what the central bankers want. There's a great interview that Chuck Schumer, the senator from New York, did at the beginning of the Trump administration where he basically said, you know, um, he said if Trump thinks he's going to contradict or defy the CIA, he's streaming. You know, they have 50 ways from Sunday to get you, right? Mm -hmm. And traditionally, if you look at the U.S. intelligence agencies, they basically work for the central bankers. So what's happening is we're watching a re-engineering of this fiscal line. And you're basically looking at the central bankers moving to put into place a system that will allow them to extract tax without representation. So that's the trick financially. How do you force the citizens to pay taxes with no representation? And of course, what they're using the pandemic to do is to roll in the system that will make it possible for them to achieve it. So I'm always quoting Naomi Wolf, who's done a very good job of describing this. And she said, vaccine passports are the end of human liberty in the West. And she's right, because it's not really, it's ultimately what it's going to evolve into is a financial transaction system where basically if you don't behave the central banks can take money right out of your account they can stop you from transacting so there's a great i think we talked about it last time there's a great panel that the imf did 
with Karstens, who's the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, and Jay Powell is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And uh, they're talking about central bank digital currencies. And Carson says, well, the great thing about central bank digital currencies, if you don't want citizens of another country to transact, you can just shut off their ability to transact. And Powell kind of blanches because he knows what that means is, oh, you can cut off anybody's ability to transact. Yeah. Right. If you want complete control, then you want transactional control, but you want transactional control broken down into very... Um, into both space and function. So let me tell you what I mean by that. You know, I want the ability to say you can only transact five miles from your home. You know, so I, I, I want you not to be able to travel. Okay, so, so your electric car that, or your driverless car can't go more than five miles from your home. Okay, but you can't, you can't do anything five, beyond five miles. So one is spatial control. But the other is function. You're not allowed to um, spend money on these items as opposed to other items. So we don't want you eating fresh food. We want you eating, you know, synthetic foods from Bill Gates's companies. So you can only transact according to what we dictate is, you know, approved. I've always assumed that Bitcoin was a prototype. The thing to understand about the central bankers and, and the group of people, not so much the central bankers, but the people who own them, is they are very disciplined about prototyping. When they want to try something new, they, they generate lots of different experiments. So when I used to work on Wall Street, you know, Salman Brothers was one of the ones that was famous. If they wanted to figure something out, they'd tell 10 teams to go do it, and they wouldn't tell any of the teams about the other teams. <laughs> you know, and so you'd get this huge competition and war within the firm of 10 teams trying to do this thing. And they figured, okay, one will figure it out. So if you look at the venture capital model, um, you will see in a venture capital fund, they figure out of 30 investments, maybe two will make money, but they will make enough money to make the whole thing highly profitable. Because of the monetary policy, they ran the risks of inflation. So the question is, how can we suck a huge amount of money into non-real assets. They're, they're accumulating land. They're accumulating gold. After the, They came out of the financial crisis and were steadily moving money, I believe, out of the fixed income markets trying to buy up the real assets. So how do you keep the retail market away from competing with you to buy up the real assets? Well, if you can get them off in Bitcoin and the cryptos, you know, you're just creating an asset out of thin air, right? Yes. I mean, it's energy expensive, but it's thin air. So, so, it's much easier. It was extremely important to manage and manipulate the gold market because gold's like the smoke alarm, so you want to keep the smoke alarm from going off. If you can get everybody out of gold and into Bitcoin, it gives you a much more long ramp to sort of accumulate all the real assets without anybody figuring out. And then what, what do you think, they'll, they'll have it run up and then, then crash it or just kind of let it run parallel? So I think Bitcoin's been pumping and dumping, you know, and, you know, so think of it as a, in a bull market, you, you pump and dump your way up. Because remember, the, the people transacting make the most money from volatility, right? So when the stock market dropped 35% last year, you know, that's a great opportunity to buy and then run it back up. So remember, if you're going to build your control system, then you need to build a system of central bank digital currencies. And you don't want to do that until you've had sufficient prototyping, but you've also made digital currency fashionable. Okay? And, and to do that, I mean, you can go out and hire all the top developers in the world, but if you just persuade them they can make lots of money and be free if they do it themselves... You know, and you make it very fun and innovative like the Wild West. They all jump in and they figure and prototype all these things for you. So it's the platform Then you then build your central bank digital currency system, which now they're working on rolling out. Once you've, you've kind of gotten different aspects of the blockchain and the energy use figured out. Now, part of this is the smart grid because you need to get everybody onto electrical systems for this to work, Right. Vaccine passports will make you free. Crypto will make you free. This will all make you free. And then you get them building your prison for you. Right, because you can't... Remember, we're talking about a system where very, very few pe people have central control. 
the guys who are going to have central control can't build that. They've got to get the general population to build their own prison. And that's, we talked about this last time, the power of this is if you see it, if you see the trap coming, then you can just stop. You can say, you know something, I, I don't want to build the prison. If you look at a lot of the financial fraud over the last 20 years in the United States, the leader of that financial fraud in many cases was J.P. Morgan Chase. And yet statistics show that 50% of Americans bank or have credit cards or other relationships with J.P. Morgan Chase. So I remember in 1998 when I was, um, uh, I first realized what was happening with the mortgage fraud and J.P. Morgan Chase was at the heart of it. I was writing a, a check on a J.P. Morgan Chase banking account and I said, why am I banking? Uh, you know, why am I allowing my funds to be used as deposits to engineer financial fraud? I've got to come clean. I mean, if tomorrow, forget going to Washington and protesting, if tomorrow everybody woke up and said, you know, I'm not going to bank with a New York Fed member bank, the, the change would be dramatic. Because if you look at where we're banking and who we're working for and who we're associating with, you know, we're helping them do this. So remember, this is an all-digital system, and, and one aspect of this is currency. But the other is a one-way mirror where you have 24-7 surveillance and data. So not only can I watch you 24-7 and collect data, data from your body, data from your mind, data from your activities, but then I can stop you from moving around spatially or I can turn off your ability to transact. So let me give you some examples. So one, it's a control system, and two, it's a transaction system. But it's the end of currencies because no longer can you put money in your pocket and walk away. You can only transact, you know, through my company store, if you will. So let's talk about, like, so what is a currency, really? I mean, it's not, this is more credit at the company store, like Right, this is a credit at the company so store. It's not a currency. Currency, so the end of real currency. money would be, like, store value, right. meet. Uh, divisible, transportable, acceptable. So this is right. why I always say, what is it about the word crypto that you don't understand? It's a crypt. It's, it's your death? Yeah. Yeah. So let me, so, so let's go back. So we have a 24-7 surveillance system. And, and that surveillance system uh, can literally get you, the human race, to be connected to the cloud, to the AI, the software, and the robots. So just like when my company outsources things to India and I, I send my current workers to India to teach the Indians how to do the work, we're talking about connecting the human race up to a cloud where they teach the AI, the software, and the robots how to do their jobs. And so part of what is happening in this future system is you're engineering the 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 existing population out of the workplace and you're integrating them with robotics in, in a labor system which is shared. So in other words, whether I have a human do that job or whether I have a robot do that job, I can manage them in the same system if I can have them all hooked up to the cloud and communicating with each other. Yeah, so it just seems like a lot of this is taking the humanity out of humans or kind of robotizing humans. Right. So, one of the, we look so back it's in the at the at the highest level, it's very simple. You can have a human civilization, or you can have an inhuman civilization, and you can have a monopoly control the printing of the financial money, or we can decentralize. So, if you look at our scenarios for 2020, it's they print, we print, human versus inhuman. Now, where I want to be is here, where we decentralize control of the financial printing press and we stay committed to a human civilization. Where they want to go is transhumanism and technocracy. So instead of having markets, you have micromanagement through AI and software. You don't need markets because you're going to optimize through the algorithms and you have transhumanism where basically you integrate the human race with robots into one labor force. Well, I think they believe it can work because, and I'll show you why, because of the one-way mirror. So you have a one-way mirror where, you know, basically 
you have 100% access to the data 24-7 of the people on this side of the mirror. But remember, once you engineer all this um, secret money and taxation without representation, you know, they can't see behind the mirror. I mean, the thing that punches a hole in the mirror is transparency about government money and no taxation with representation. And that's why this central bank takeover of the sovereign governments is so important to try and engineer that. On one side of the mirror is a separate civilization. How many people is that? I could only guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've watched the money disappear, and I've watched the technology in that world develop, but you're literally talking about a parallel universe. So I told you the story of the cabinet secretary I worked for. When he was told he, we had to do something because it was the law, the law, the law, I don't obey the law. I don't have to obey the law. I report to a higher moral authority. So you have a group of people over here who are not subject they have immunity from prosecution for the law. They can engage in systematic violation of the what you and I think of as the law with impunity. With they're completely immune from the law. So they and 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 if you look at how much money has been moved out in the financial coup, they can literally become a parallel civilization. They're not subject to our laws and the amount of money that they either have or print. So so let me step back. When the central bankers of the G7 nations went into the room in Jackson Hole in August 2019 and they voted on the going direct reset, everything that's happening to us right now is part of the going direct reset and they voted on it. It was a plan. Okay, so they wrote a plan. They decided to do this. So they've been they've been engaged in the financial coup for 20 years. We're now coming into the end game. They have to consolidate the financial coup and they vote on the going direct reset. And with that one decision, they made a decision over the next year to put 500 million people out of work. That's the equivalent of dropping several nuclear bombs around the world. That's financial warfare. And they made it intentionally, they made it knowingly, and it was a plan. And what is very important to understand when you think about this pandemic is People are not dying from magic viruses. People are dying from tyranny. They're dying from a great poisoning that's part of that tyranny. But our problem and the thing we need to be afraid of is tyranny because the tyranny is about to get much, much worse. And, and it's the passports and, and that system of central bank digital control that will give them the ability to do that. The World Economic Forum calls it the Great Reset which is kind of the marketing, you know, it's, it's the, if, if I were to get everybody in a room and talk about the going direct reset, it would all, everybody would go to sleep because it's all financial. <laughs> okay, but the World Economic Forum guys make it, you know, interesting and fashionable and, you know, um, it's 2030, you own nothing and uh, you're happy. Now, what I hear is it's 2030, the going direct reset has stolen all your money, taken all your assets, and they've got your mind controlled. Do you know what I mean? So it depends on how you look at it. But, but the, the reset is to, is to sell to people a vision of a world where the, the average person has a much smaller um, command on resources and assets and is subject to complete central control. Part of what you're dealing with is human beings crave coherence. And so if you can put them in a state of incoherence, they will literally do anything they can to get back to coherence. It's a torture mechanism. If you study torture, it's a typical tor torture tactic. If, if you just do what I want, you know, I will allow you to go back to a state of coherence. So that's why you see all these people saying, you know, if you just accept the passports, you know, you'll be free. Or if you get the vaccination, you'll just be free. They have spent a fortune since World War II on figuring out how to use digital technology and telecommunications and media to implement mind control much more economically and much more broadly. And one of the things I think is they're very enthusiastic about how well it's worked. And 
you know, part of what they're doing is sort of, you know, they're they're exercising their ability to use that technology to get, you know, they're saying, okay, this stuff will kill you, but you have to take it, but it'll make you free, you know, and then it works. I mean, part of, there is, particularly in the United States, a very negative downward spiral between the leadership and the general population, and there's a lot of anger between them. And, um, you know, this is all part of proving that people are stupid and, and therefore don't deserve to be part of a democratic process. So you're, you're regularly pledging obedience to things which are not logical. You know, so one of my favorite ones was <laughs> Rick Santilli and Andrew Sorkin were having a fight on the Shriekometer media. And uh, Santilli was saying it makes no sense to shut down these little businesses and say Costco can open up next door. You know, and, and so, and, and of course, of course, it makes total sense because the guys in New York don't own the small businesses they're shutting down and calling non-essential, and they do own the publicly traded business next door. But Sorkin sits there with a straight face, and he says, absolutely, that's science. The science proves that you can have Costco open, but you have to study. <laughs> and he just says, it's the science. And then everybody goes, oh, yeah, it's science. It's the Pfizer expression, trust science. <laughs> Crazy, huh? No, here's the thing. When will it stop working? The reason I'm always trying to get everyone to follow the financial patterns is if you follow what's happening financially, it's a very different story than if you're following what the shriekometer is shrieking. You know, because the shriekometer is shrieking the, the propaganda story or the cover story. You know, but if you're watching the financial transactions, it's very different. So. Did I explain what happened in the 2014 elections? The Senate, oh, it was hysterical. So the Republicans were trying to hold the Senate, and it was 2014, and everything they tried wasn't working, and they were behind in the polls. So then coming into, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember when it was, but sort of coming into the end game, suddenly they start with Ebola. I don't know if you remember this. And all of a sudden, Every newspaper front page is screaming Ebola, Ebola, Ebola. You know, some guy comes in from Africa, and the subliminal message is that black president he's bringing in black people, and you're all going to die because they'll give you Ebola, 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 Ebola. Suddenly, the Republicans are rising in the polls. Meantime, the the you know I get all these subscriptions from business newsletters, and they're sending out the message: you can ignore Ebola; it has no impact on your business. You don't have to think about this. You don't have to worry about this. But meantime, according to the, you know, the front page, even the front page of the Wall Street Journal, you're all going to die from Ebola. And then literally the Republicans win the Senate. And then the next day it's page seven and the next day it's gone. Like magic. It was, you know, and of course I spent absolutely no time worrying about Ebola for our business or anything else because, you know, it was clearly simply a shriekometer engineering of an election. So I would say if you look at how Northern Europe is run, there's been a much more beneficial relationship between government and the general population. Than in the States? Than in the States. So the, the States have been very, very different locally. So, um, you know, in the United States, for example, one of the biggest problems is the federal government at the end of World War II opened up the U.S. markets to narcotics trafficking. And there has been a steady diminution of the quality of neighborhoods from narcotics trafficking and related mortgage fraud. And that's one of the things I've written about. And you can travel through Northern Europe and you don't see the same kind of destruction. I grew up in West Philadelphia and my neighborhood was destroyed by narcotics trafficking that was completely air covered by the federal government. We've been living in a slow and steady deterioration as political power has been taken away from citizens. You know, they have been kept entertained with lots of entertaining media or with government money. If you look at what's going on in the pandemic in the United States, people are literally being bought out of the labor force where they're making more money on unemployment compensation than they're making, they were making working. And what that will be used is to you know, you'll basically take the labor force away from small business, and that's part of bankrupting all the small business in Main Street. 
and you'll buy them into a system where you can completely control them. So they're the ones who will be, you know, you're, you're not going to get your continuing unemployment benefit unless you get on the passports or you go along with the digital, you know, it'll, it'll be a steady series of these things to buy them into the system, but to buy them into the control system. So what do they have to gain by going on with this? Uh, you know, I've been asking that question ever since I was a little girl. Uh, I can't tell you because I've watched my whole life my fellow Americans sell their human rights and sell their neighbors' human rights for a little bit of money and a little bit of false security. I've watched thousands and thousands of people try and change what's happening, you know, and they've been assassinated and they've been poisoned and they've been destroyed. I mean, the covert operations in the United States to stop political activities all the way from COINTELPRO to the Kennedy assassinations to assassinating Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. I mean, there have been very significant covert operations to stop people from bringing about change. And as a result, people are scared. I'll never forget at Hamilton Securities, I sat down with, I had a group of IT guys who were trying to stop me. I was building, um, we were building data centers in low-income neighborhoods and sort of making education accessible. And um, they were sure I was going to get killed. They were absolutely sure I was going to get killed. And so they got me into the boardroom and tried to talk me out of it. And so we had a long, very detailed conversation. And what I discovered is they had all been active in politics during the 60s. And the assassinations had scared them all to death and they had stopped. And sort of instead become materialists and just said, okay, well, I'm going to live my life and enjoy the financial benefits of being part of the system and... You know, and they'd given up on politics, and but they you, were deeply, deeply scared. And what do you think about that approach or that attitude? I, I found it to be very prevalent in the United States. So I'll give you a perfect example. So when I litigated with the Department of Justice, I had a wonderful uncle, just fabulous uncle. And I had always helped people in my family who ran into trouble because I made so much money. If anybody ever needed help, I always said yes, I always helped them. Anyway, so when the sort of the hit came along, he said, well, she helped everybody, so I'm going to help her. And I had farmland in New Hampshire, family farmland, and I sold my farmland back to him because they were trying to squeeze me on the legal expenses. And so I sold him the farmland. Well, the next thing that happens, he gets a call from the HUD inspector general's office saying, your niece is a criminal. Why are you helping her? You know, blah, 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 blah. And we want all your financial records for the family farm. He said, I'm happy to do that, but could you send me a letter so that I have a proper request and that I can review with my attorney and make sure that my compliance is, you know, I'd like to do this formally. So they said, yes, they would send him a letter. Well, they don't send him a letter. They show up the next week at his house with a subpoena at night. It's like 9 o'clock at night in New Hampshire with three FBI guys and a guy from the HUD IG's office. And suddenly... You know, so this is very scary if you're a private citizen. Suddenly you got the FBI at your door with a subpoena slapping you and demanding, you know, all the records on the family farm. So, uh, so I was told that the family had a big conference call to decide if they should all drop me because if they associated with me, then they would become targets too. It's a hell, you know, it's, it's rough on your social life. So people, people are scared. They know. There's something, but again, it's that one-way mirror. They they can't quite see it. They can't quite see how it works. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think is the motivation for all these vaccines, COVID vaccines? So there are different possibilities, but I think it just fits control. So so if if I can literally uh, do almost perfect surveillance and IDing of you let alone make it easier for me to mind control and influence you. Um, so whether it's tracking, doing surveillance, or, or mind control, I literally think, and I said this at the very beginning in March 2020, you know, just as Bill Gates loaded an operating system into your computer that gave a sort of a backdoor and compromised your privacies, as he did it to your computer, he wants to do it to your body. One of the reasons Pfizer stayed out of Operation Warp Speed, I'm told, was because they didn't want to disclose what was in it. So we literally do not know what is in these injections. 
And there are a lot of questions about whether the injections in one place are the same as others. So, so what indication is there for that? There, there was just a headline in France. They found that 140 of the, um, of the vials had saline solution in them. So that would be a placebo. Uh, uh, you know, I, I can't explain it. What I can tell you, because I have subscribers all over the world, is you're getting very different reports of health impact and adverse events in the wealthy neighborhoods than in the poor neighborhoods. So around Silicon Valley, what I keep hearing from different subscribers is nobody's having adverse events, nobody's having deaths. Whereas in the elderly population, the poor neighborhoods, you have many more adverse events. But it's all anecdotal yet. It's not hard statistics. And then, of course, the, the, the I just was reading a study this morning on women in the first trimester. So you have very high rates of miscarriage in anybody who's pregnant in the first trimester who, who takes the injection. And, and where is that data coming from? A study of the VAERS database. There was a Harvard study called the Pilgrim Study that showed historically that maybe 1% of deaths and adverse events get reported. So we know the reporting is low. We don't know how low on this batch. But if you just read the formal adverse events and deaths that have been reported to the to the government databases in Europe and the United States, you know, it's very significant. And what I'm told is the, you know, again, the, it's only anecdotal, but the anecdotal evidence is the pressure to not report something as uh, vaccine-related is enormous. Well, here's the thing. If you're the hospital or doctors, you're liable if you didn't give informed consent. And so... I've never heard of anybody or anything that's doing a proper disclosure of what anybody needs to know about what the, the risks of death or, or uh, material adverse, adverse event are. And I'm assuming that they're all nervous about liability. The pharmaceutical companies aren't liable, so the question is who's going to be liable. So we continue to see examples where workmen's compensation um, and health care insurance don't cover the costs. So, for example, Del Victory just did a wonderful interview with a woman who was required by her employer to take the injection. She takes the injection, she gets neurological damage, has not been able to work since January, and yet they won't file for workman's compensation for her. So what, do, what, like, what, what, are, what is practical advice do you have for people that are getting stuffed into this situation right now? I mean, first of all, stop helping these guys. Stop supporting them. If you look at who's building the train tracks of control, we're the ones who are doing it. Stop helping them. So what if, what if people respond, okay, but this, that, but this is tough, I'm getting pressured, on and on and on. Right. So I want to end tyranny in a way that is comfortable and profitable for me. It doesn't work that way. Go back through history. Somebody, if somebody comes to your town, burns your house down and kills you and takes all your stuff, there's no, there's no fun, groovy way out of that, <laughs> right? So, you know, what we're dealing with here is tyranny. Now, I think tyranny will fail, and there are many different ways to fight tyranny. It's funny. A wonderful subscriber who was fighting um, some very corrupt stuff going on in her town in the United States, and she said, you know, I don't know how to take the next step without getting very public, and I'm not... I'm not a public person. And I said, go get the movie War Room. It's a, a Christian movie about prayer. And I said, what I want you to do is start a, a war room and just fight them through prayer. And she did. I got a message from her a couple months ago, and she said, oh, my God, it works. <laughs> so there are many different ways to fight, and you can fight in a way that's comfortable. Some people organize. Some people are bringing lawsuits. Some people are lobbying. Some people are moving and going to another jurisdiction. Some people are pulling their money out of J.P. Morgan Chase. There are many different ways to do it. If you're working for a big bank or big corporation, start working on building the skills and the resources and the wherewithal you need to start something yourself. Okay. And, and the second thing is start learning. It's called DIY, do it yourself. Start looking at your financial picture and figuring out instead of, you know, sort of getting your income from the big corporation and then spending lots of money buying things from big corporations, figure out how you can collapse your income statement and your balance sheet to something 
which is much more resilient both locally and doing it yourself. So somebody just sent me a great email and they said, housing prices are skyrocketing where they, you know, where I am. And this is a young couple. Their housing prices are skyrocketing. What should I do? I said, you should go out and find a great piece of land. And then I sent them links to home building courses. Because if you look at what's happened in the world of home building, we can do it ourselves. We don't, you know, we don't need to get mortgaged up and, and, and get dependent on the system. So, so the second thing is collapse. The third thing is, for God's sakes, go out and get yourself a great bank. Okay? There are lots of, um, particularly if you're in the United States, there are lots of great banks and great bankers. Okay? And, and the basis of your, train, uh, of your transactions will be great banks who also don't want the central bankers controlling everything. I mean, I know a lot of community bank presidents who don't want to be controlled by the New York Fed. The, the way currency systems work also require having asset control. The way that U.S. dollars reserve currencies work is having oil as an asset controlled by the people who control the dollar. So there is a huge effort being made to control the food system. So the first thing you need to do, swing your money out of, I mean, if you're invested in the New York Fed member banks or in the big corporations that are running the government this way, swing your money out of those stocks and start investing in building a local food system. So, you know, who's your farmer? Who's your rancher? Where are you going to get high quality fresh food? And there is tremendous opportunity to build out the local fresh food systems if you take the time and patience, there are very good investments to be had there. So who's your banker, who's your farmer and rancher, then who's your sheriff, okay? In the United States, again, I'm sorry because I'm being U.S.-centric, the, the, the entire enforcement within a county area is controlled by the sheriff. And in most counties, the sheriff is elected, not all, but most, Okay. And, and the feds literally cannot come in and do an enforcement action unless the sheriff allows it to occur. Now, there, uh, you have state legislators. Stop worrying about who the president of the United States is. Other, you know, uh, care about who your state legislatures are because the state legislators have the power to say no to the federal government, particularly if you're willing to escrow your taxes and get into this taxation without representation. Okay, so so go through your financial statement and your balance sheet and get the bad guys out of your money and start supporting the local guys who are willing to support the rule of law. So it was very interesting. We have a, if you come into Solari, we have something called the Take Action Crowd Fund. And it started when I had a former client who called me and she said, uh, I just sold a house and I want to know, should I put the money into real estate or precious metals. And I said, what's the point of having assets if you don't have an army to protect them? Meaning, if you don't have litigators and state legislators and sheriffs who are willing to go protect your assets, your assets are worthless. You'll lose them. So, in fact, she took the money and gave it to a group of litigators who are litigating some of what's going on right now. Anytime you can make an investment that permanently reduces your expenses, you're better off. Back to do-it-yourself. So instead of paying your water bill, build a well. In other words, you know, get your money out of financing the, the, the guys who are doing this to you and get your money into financing yourself or your friends or people you know and trust. If tyranny controls everything and tyranny can operate above the law, then nothing's going to work. So, you know, for many, many years, I've watched my clients and subscribers trying to figure out how to wiggle around the system because... You know, I'm only one person. But here's the thing. This is a war, and if we don't stand up and fight it now, you know, th there's no wiggle around this. There's no way to outplay it. There's no place to run. There's no place to go. So you've got to stand and fight back. And um, if I could quote your great interview with C.J. Hopkins, when he said, you know, whatever you can do to create friction, do it. It was great advice. And what would you say to the average person with no assets and he's a bus driver, he's uh, working at the grocery store? Like, what, what can they do? Oh, it depends on their circumstance. There's a lot they can do. Um, and I, as you know, I believe prayer is really powerful.
So uh, as I told that subscriber of mine to go into the war room, I would start a war room. And I would ask for, for advice, you know, in prayer on what you can do. Because there are many, many things people can do. Thanks, right. So, so there, there are three forms up at Soleri. One is the family disclosure form. Mm-hmm. Here, I'll do it this way. So one is the family disclosure form. And that's to help families who are thinking of taking an injection walk through the actual financial ramifications in terms of insurance, disability, health insurance, life insurance, all the financial questions. And I first developed that form because I had seen so many families bankrupted by vaccine injury. And this is designed specifically to help families avoid bankrupting themselves through vaccine injury. Then we wrote an employer, and Corey Lynn of Corey Diggs did this employer disclosure form and a school disclosure form. You can get these at Solari.com. And that is if an employer or a school pressures or mandates injections, COVID-19 injections, it forces them to perform informed consent and to accept liability. So we're seeing employers mandated, even though under the law they can't, with an emergency authorization. Now, once the FDA approves, then they can. But the employer's workman's compensation, disability insurance, health insurance, isn't covering the adverse events. So we're seeing people get sick, the employer won't, uh, won't, won't apply for workman's compensation, the health insurance doesn't cover. And in fact, the employer hasn't exercised informed consent. So part of this is to force them to, to go through the informed consent process and to assume liability. Then there's something called a notice of liability. And a notice of liability um, says to a party, um, you are liable if you don't perform informed consent and you are liable for the ramifications of what you're doing. So um, when the European Parliament passed the passports, the doctors for COVID ethics, who had been communicating with the healthcare, the medical agency, delivered seven, I think it was 714 notices of liability to all the parliamentarians in the European Parliament, putting them on notice that what they were, what they were basically proposing and voting for was in violation of the Nuremberg Principles and it was constituted crime against humanity. Now, there's a, a, you know, notice of liabilities is a tactic to try and instill the law in a situation where people are not following the law. So where I'm a health officer and I'm justifying a policy, even though it's in violation of the actual science, but I'm saying it's supported by science, you know, that's a perfect situation where a notice of liability puts them on notice that they are personally liable for the harm that's done. And and how would you characterize these characters, these officials, health officials doing these things? So I'm not in, you know, I'm not around any of the health officers, but I've seen many, uh, many government officials break the law and intentionally do things that are harmful for the citizens. And they usually do it because they've been bullied or threatened or they're scared or they've been offered very attractive incentives. So, you know, if you're a government official, you're going to, whether it's, you know, carrots or sticks, so whatever the kickbacks are, you know, you want to get the kickbacks, you want to get the promotions, or they've got a control file. So they've got, you know, it's J. Edgar Hoover's dirty pictures. They've got dirty pictures on you or somebody in your family. So we have a choice. We have free We have a choice. Everybody has a choice. So stop building the prison. Stop helping these guys and start creating friction. I'm not saying go out, you know, stand in front of the tank tomorrow, but but we don't have to go along, and we're the ones who are building the prison. So you have to one, you have to bring transparency to what's going on, and then you have to take action. So you know, we're not all going to make it out of this process alive. 
face the fact it's war. That's what happens in war. But human liberty is worth fighting for. You know, we're living in a world where there are two visions. And the top 1% have a vision of us as a natural resource. And we have a vision, I have a vision of us as uh, individuals with sovereign rights under divine, that come to us by divine authority. So this is really a question of do we live in uh, a world defined by divine intelligence and intelligence, or do we live in a world defined by hyper-materialism? You know, there are two extraordinary different visions. And what I would say is that human will uh, and, and free will is, um, is an impulse under the guidance of divine intelligence. It's not simply uh, a materialistic impulse from a, you know, a piece of natural, living natural resource. You know, we're talking about a society where either we all have the ability to exercise our potential versus a few people have the ability to exercise their potential and they can squeeze us to, you know, to give themselves more benefit and more juice. Now, in their defense, we've had a world where, you know, where one portion of the globe has benefited by exploiting the other portion of the globe. Now we're globalizing and the question is, will we grow up and live in a world where we all can exercise their potential? Or is it going to be just a few and then everybody else provides? So, so we've been in a, in a middle state and now it's all or nothing. And that's going to be the impact of globalization. So any closing comments? They're nuts. <laughs> so, I would suggest to you that whatever your take on the situation, the reason you want to go to work on building the everybody model is when they fail, we need a plan. So I always tell people, while the Titanic is sinking, grab some planks and some deck chairs and start building your ark because these guys are going to make a huge mess. This is a mess. And if you look at what they're trying to do, it's very hard, it's very complicated. I described it all in the state of a currency. I think it's going to fail. Great. Well, thank you, Catherine. So, thank you. Yeah, appreciate your time <laughs> and your insights.